0: Hey, last week we began a series on holiness <clears throat> where we're emphasizing a heart fully devoted to god and i asked the question last week when i mentioned the word holy or holiness do you naturally think god has just given me a gift or do you naturally think oh, i have to live life a certain way which way do you naturally go do you see this as a gift from the Lord, or do you see this as more and more requirements? And we started, and this, during this sermon, you get to be a bunch of slaves called Israel. He brings them out of Egypt, and you don't know anything except how to make bricks. That's all you really know. You understand the Egyptian religious practices because you've been around them your whole life and many more beside. But basically, a bunch of slaves. And then, um, if you were God, how would you decide, how would you begin to teach them about holiness? How would you do that? Would you give them a rule book? Maybe a textbook? Maybe a history book? How would you do that? How would you begin to teach them about holiness? When we, when we talk about the nature of the world around us, when you look out those windows right there and you see all that we see, if God had never spoke, if he had never spoken, what would you think? What would you think about reality? We're going to have to talk about that in just a moment. You see, God is faced with a challenge. He has a bunch of people that he wants to call his own. He's chosen them to be his people, and they know very little. Very, very little. They don't know about supply and demand. They don't know about foreign policy. They don't know about domestic policy. They don't know about military strategy. They don't know about economics. They don't know about border security, which is a big part of us. They don't know anything about that. It's a big hot topic today in our world. What they know is how to make bricks. That's what they know. And they understand the religious practices in which they were raised. That's what they understand. So how in the world would God begin to teach them about holiness? One of my favorite authors, Chris Wright, has written several books. This is one, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. Uh, the title alone ought to interest you. Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. And here's what he, how he starts. Biblical Ethics. Now let's pause. Ethics is all the morality and the way we live our life and the way we construct what is right and wrong, that sort of thing. Biblical ethics flow from the reality of God. They did not, however, flow directly into the consciousness of individuals. Did you hear that? They did not flow into the consciousness of individuals, nor did they flow as a complete whole into a single monolithic dictated rule book. God chose a much more indirect route, a historical route. A route lined with vistas of immense variety, trodden by people of utterly human fallibility, a route that was fraught with risk. It been a lot easier just to give you a book. That would be a lot easier. That's not the way it works. By the way, it's not the way it works in any of your lives either, what he's describing. God created a people, and then he entered into a relationship with them. By this means, Old Testament ethics could never be a matter of timeless and uh, universal abstract principles. But rather, the ethics were hammered out within the historical and cultural situation of the people, this community, this society that we call the House of Israel. God started with Himself. So today we're going to ask the question... How did God decide to reveal the true nature of reality? How did that happen? If God had never spoken, and this is all you had right here, what would, how would you define reality? How would you define it? Well, in order to answer the question, uh, I want to talk to you about what the ancient world thought. This is what Israel walked out of Egypt thinking. All of their ancient religions... The religions in the ancient Near East, that's what we call all that surrounding area. These are their beliefs, not all of them, but there's some of their key ones. By the way, this is still found in Hinduism today. Hinduism predates our Judeo-Christian heritage. And so uh, you find these principles at work. If you go with me to one of our Hindu countries, you'll see all these things at work today. Everything that exists in the physical world is, and this is a technical term, continuous with the gods in every way, what we see is what's there. How would we know what's there if they never spoke? We have to look at us, and whatever we see with us, that's what we see there. There are as many gods as there are phenomena in the world. In Hinduism, there's 330 million gods. For for every God, every reason you could think of to have a God, they have a God. Good and evil are an endless conflict. They just are circling together in endless conflict, and that which supports or destroys the cosmic order—that's what's evil. That's what's bad. In Egypt, the sun god Ra rose every morning, brought order to the world, purpose, and in the evening it went down into the netherworld, which created chaos in the world, and then it rose again the next morning, order and purpose, and then chaos. For the Egyptians, creation occurred every 24 hours. And creation was defined as bringing order to the world. They didn't think in terms of origins, and we have a debate on whether Genesis is talking about young earth, old earth, all of that. That was never on anybody's radar screen until this century. It's not the way they thought. That's not the question they were asking. Order, chaos. Order, chaos. That's what creation was to them. The formation of the visible world... uh, Oh, yeah. The formation of the visible world is the result of the conflict between good and evil. This endless cycle of tension. Somehow, not sure how, they don't ever specify it, but somehow this brought about the world that we see today. The gods emerged out of this chaos primarily through sexual means. That's where the gods came from. But how would they know different? That's what we do. We get married, have a relationship, children are born. The character of the gods is identical with that of the humans, only on a grander scale. So if we have conflict, they have conflict. If we're jealous, if we get angry, they get angry. That's how they viewed the gods, the pantheon of the gods. The gods are bound by no code of honor, only by fate. As a result, many of the gods would die endlessly, often tragically, and then be reborn. They would go through these cycles. Since the gods are identical with humans, the fundamental life force is sexual in nature. Thus, sex is profoundly a religious activity. Again, if you come with me into a Hindu temple, you can ask me later how I I observe it, but the, the sexual part of Hinduism is very prevalent in both Hindu temples and in Buddhist temples. I can show you both of them. The human world is only a reflection of the invisible, the real world. Ours is not real. That's the real world. And this is only a reflection of it. There's no such thing as absolute ethics. Ethics makes sense if you have 330 million gods in hinduism for example each with a different perspective on what's right and wrong because they reflect us there's no such thing as absolute ethics all of the gods adhere to different ethical standards so which of the gods are you going to follow who are you going to follow after i was teaching a class in india one year with indian students and i was talking about there's one god uh, one father, one baptism, one mediator, and that this is a model for what it means to be unified. And my students all started laughing. And I said, well, maybe I didn't get translated correctly. So I said, what are you laughing about? And they have that, oh, you silly still the American look. They said, you look at it as a model. No, you don't understand reality. You cannot be unified if you have two gods. Because they differ. We have 330 million Unity is not even a possibility when you have that many gods. Unity is predicated on the idea, based on the idea that we serve one true living God. And for them, that's reality. All the gods adhere to different ethical standards. Religion is designed to maintain order and avoid chaos. In other words, to placate the gods. When the gods are angry, the world is is full of turmoil and chaos. Therefore, our goal is to make the gods satisfied, to placate them, to serve them. Humans have very little value and no dignity at all. Guys don't care about us. Very little value and no dignity. This was the understanding of reality for Israel and all the nations of the ancient world. how would you know if that's true or not your guess is as good as mine my experience is just as powerful as your experience I tripped and fell didn't break a leg there must be a God here how would you know otherwise if God had not spoken when I look at the scriptures everywhere I go From beginning to end, every verse, I have a very basic viewpoint. This is how I start my interpretation. When God speaks, whenever he speaks, he does so for the purpose of redemption. Let me remind you what redemption means. Redemption means you got yourself in a bind and you can't get yourself out of it. You're stuck. So maybe, maybe you get laid off from your job and you can't pay your heating bill. Somebody comes along and says, let me pay your heating bill. That's redemption. And our world is stuck. It's broken. At every, every direction you could turn. Every direction. As far as I know, we have no example of culture ever leading us in the right direction. If God does not intervene, we are guaranteed to go off the cliff. Guaranteed that's redemption. So whenever God speaks into culture, he does so for the purpose of fixing something that's broken. On virtually every point, the biblical understanding of reality is radically different than what I just read you. For example, there are fixed boundaries between God and everything else. God is God, everything else he created. Good is that which is consistent with God's will. It's not what brings order to the to the to chaos, to creation is that which is inconsistent with his will. The cosmos, that's everything you see, came into existence because of God's created will, not because of endless tension and conflict. God has always existed. He wasn't born out of sexual relationship. He's always existed. God's character is radically different from humans. He's not continuous with us. He is unique and by himself and wholly other in every way you can measure. We can't look at us and see him. It's the other way around. God cannot be manipulated. He cannot be. He is God. Although God is referred to in exclusively male terms, he's not sexual. Sexuality is a feature of creation. Let us make human beings on our image. Male and female, he made them. It's a unique feature of creation. Therefore, in our heritage, sexuality is forbidden in every religious practice. Not like every other religion in the ancient world. The world is profoundly real and not a mere reflection of the invisible world. It's real. Creation has a purpose and a goal. It's not just endless cycles of tension. Order and chaos, good and evil. There is a single standard of ethics that applies to the whole world By which the whole world will be held accountable. Because there's one God. Religion is a means of expressing trust in God and his promises. Rather than placating him. We're not here to placate the gods. That's not it at all. It's a means of expressing trust in him. Humans are the highest order of God's creation. And are to exercise dominion over creation. We are the highest order. Okay, now back to slaves. You didn't know any of that. None. And so if you were God, what would you do? Hand him a book. Tell them all the rules and regulations. We confuse all these words. Covenant, testament, law. We put them all together. It's all captured by the word Torah. In Israel, which does mean law, but they didn't, think of the way, well, they didn't think of law the way we did. We think of law as real simple. I get caught by the police, I'm going to get a fine or go to jail. That's not how they thought of it. The very definition of the word Torah or law in Judaism has to do with direction, instruction. Somebody cares enough about you to say, do this, not that, because this is better. I love in the classroom asking my students, how do you, what comes to mind when I mention the word Mosaic Law? And here are the rules, commands, rigidity, and flexibility, on and on and on. And yet none of the authors said that. David said, I love your precepts, O Lord. Teach me your law. Paul says the law is good. John says it's grace. Why was it grace? Because in a world where the gods never spoke, our God spoke. Can you imagine serving a bunch of gods that never talked? And yet, if you don't obey them, they're going to be really upset? Figure that one out. So when you read the ancient divination codes, you find all kinds of things. You see, them, they, take a, they sacrifice an animal, they take the liver and whack it. It falls apart. They have a book that says, well, if it falls this way, it means he's angry. It falls this way, it doesn't mean he's angry. <clears throat> That's still true today in Hinduism. In Madurai, in the big temple Madurai, India, they have two huge stone elephants. And you buy these little pallets of butter. Of course, you have to pay for them. And you throw the butter at the concrete elephant. If it sticks, then that means that God is not going to be angry with you for the next year. If it falls off, too bad. I would think it would be important which time of the year you threw it based on the temperature. And how hard you can throw this thing. I've sat there and watched it. Watched people throw in this butter. How would you know? And out of the darkness, out of this what we call superstitious world, our God spoke. He spoke. And He acted. He did both. No wonder they loved the law. They no longer had to guess. So here's a dilemma. God's people have been immersed in the Egyptian cosmology and therefore everything they understood was both mistaken and perversely wrong at every point. Their understanding of reality was wrong at every point. So God had to find a way to communicate with his people that they would understand. And covenant was the place he chose to do it. That's how he chose to do it. They understood covenant. You see, a king would come, or a pharaoh, either one, would come and say, let me tell you about who I am. Okay, I'm going to tell you about me. And then here are the rules. And you have to obey them, or or whatever the punishment is. That's language they understood, and so he starts with covenant. But where does he start? Does he start with a rule book, with the nation of Israel? No, he starts with ten plagues. Ten plagues. Ten plagues. They began to see something they had not seen before. A god appears that defeated the gods, the primary gods of Egypt. Didn't say a word to the people. He just began to reveal his character very slowly, very gradually. Then he guides them out. They're terrified. He protects them from the Israelites and he parts the waters of the Red Sea. And they see this power once again. And then they soon forget how harsh Egypt was and all they're remembering is the good food. Remember, they don't know how to take care of themselves. And they're remembering being taken care of, so God provides food for them. Three months later, he decides to talk. He decides to talk. He started with action. By the way, if you looked carefully at your own history and your personal lives, that's what you would see. He was involved in your life long before he spoke. That's a pattern. So, God used the covenant treaty to begin to reveal himself. And you think, how does laws reveal a God? Oh, it's real simple. Let me walk into your family and sit there for a while, and I can tell the nature and character and your values by the things that you do. Are you an abusive parent? Are you a loving parent? Are you do you have guidelines for your children to live within so that it builds security? Or are you just free for whatever goes goes? And your kids have been I can tell, just like you can. I can go sit in your family and listen to your commands and I can tell your character. Your char- your commands, what you enforce in your families, reveals your character as a parent. It's no different with God. Because Proverbs tells us. Two paths are open to us, only two. The way of righteousness and wisdom, the way of folly and foolishness. Righteousness and wisdom leads to joy, true deep joy, which is what you're created for. Folly and foolishness leads to perceived joy. Feels pretty good, but it's really short-lived. You've all learned that lesson, haven't you? Don't have to tell you that. You've all sinned. Never get you where you want. And so when God begins to speak and says, do this, don't do that, his character begins to emerge. This is the right way to do it. You've heard me use the example with sin. If I have a four-year-old boy, I say, don't run on the street, you're going to get hurt. That's a reflection of my character and my care for my son. If I don't say anything, he's still going to get hurt, isn't he? Therefore, it's an act of grace and it reveals my character when I say, don't do this. Because you're going to get hurt. That's all the identification of sin is in the Bible, is an act of grace on God's part. To help you grasp true reality. So the, the commandment, the covenants, all those things, they reveal something about the character of God. Not only that, his actions, which go to hand in hand with his speaking, his actions reveal his grace. Everywhere you turn, He reminds them of his love and grace before he tells them what he wants. In fact, when they're standing at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, what does he say? Remind them that I brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wings. I released you from slavery. I rescued you because I heard your groaning. Therefore, don't do these things. He always starts with his love for us. And he demonstrates that in his action before he tells us what to do. That's a very consistent pattern. That's all part of the covenant. And they understood that language, that terminology. When God defeated the gods of Egypt, guess what? This revealed his superiority, but more importantly than that, it forced the Hebrew slaves to rethink their view of reality. Who is this God that just came in and destroyed the ten major gods of Egypt? How on earth did that happen? Who is this God? You see, their gods were not other like our gods. Their gods were immersed in their world. That's all they knew. Our God is other. He is completely separate and unique. This began very slowly changing their view of reality. That's how God reveals his character. That's how God reveals his holiness And as Jesus said, for those with ears to hear and listen, that's what draws us into a life where we want to be wholly devoted to the Lord. As we listen, we see, we watch. The actions of God are just as important as the words of God. They are. They're just as important. There's only one thing in the universe that can properly be called holy. That's our God. That's a God that we serve. He has blessed us. He has taken care of us. He has loved us. He has protected us. He's given us reality. He's taught us through experience and through His words. So that when we look out here, we now have a very different perspective than the people who don't know God. That's what holiness is all about, being different, being different. Father, thank you for being a holy God. Thank you for being a God who loves us, God who is gracious, God who saves us, rescues us, redeems us, protects us, gives us everything we need to enjoy you, each other, and the creation you've given us. Thanks for making us with dignity, with value in a world where people don't feel that very much. We try to manufacture it, but we can't really get there. Thank you for giving us value based on who you are. your son's name, amen.